In December 2013, Jahiving Math was declared brain dead after suffering com complications from a tonsillectomy performed at Children's Hospital and Research Center in Oakland, California. McMath's family refused to accept the diagnosis of brain death and eventually transferred her to a care facility in New Jersey, the only US state that requires religious accommodation for rejection of brain death diagnoses. We can talk about this a little bit more um, in the Q&A. Uh, I didn't wanna get too bogged down in the details, uh, in the kind of background details, but it is it is kind of interesting that New Jersey stands out as, as requiring um, healthcare facilities to accommodate uh, religious objections to, to brain death. So McMath uh, was transferred to New Jersey where she experienced cardiopulmonary death in June of 2018. The circumstances of, of McMath's death and her two separate death certificates issued in two different states prompted much discussion about the nature of brain death, what a hospital's obligations are to families who do not accept brain death diagnoses, how well brain death is understood among laypersons, and the proper role of religious views regarding death in healthcare contexts. So McMath did have two death certificates issued. One was issued in the state of California and then another was issued um, by the state of New Jersey, just for clarification. So what is relevant for today's conversation is the role that race played, at least from the family's perspective in the treatment of McMath and in subsequent discussions about her. So there's a lot of, you know, if you just Google um, Jahai McMath's name, you know, there's a lot of kind of popular press and media and academic articles and um, interviews um, about her circumstances. And, um, you know, lots of people have kind of latched on to different aspects of of this, of this circumstance. So, you know, I say from the family's perspective as a caveat, not because I doubt that this is true. In fact, I, I, you'll see later, I actually do think that it's, that it's true, but because the hospital denies this to have been the case, right? So the hospital denies that race played any sort of factor in McMath's care. And they've been largely um, silent with the exception of, I think maybe one or two kind of public statements that maybe their general counsel uh, drafted, partly because there's a lot of litigation uh, swirling around, or there was at one point. Also relevant is the fact that McMath suffered from pediatric obstructive sleep apnea and that she was obese, or she was regarded as obese. I mean, I've seen photos of her, but uh, the conversation around her centers on, um, the conversations around her weight um, always cast her as being obese. Um, I'll leave that alone. I'll, I'll just put a pin in that for now. We can talk about that in the Q&A. But to return to the details of the case, approximately an hour after her surgery, McMath began experiencing complications, specifically excessive bleeding. According to the family, they alerted the nurses and were told that postoperative bleeding was to be expected. McMath's grandmother, also a nurse, tried to convey to McMath's nurses that the amount of bleeding McMath was experiencing was concerning. Yet, despite filling multiple kidney basins with blood, it was four and a half hours from when the family first expressed concern until a physician examined McMath. Now, this is, this is the family's account. The hospital hasn't um, really released much of a, a public account about um, what exact, uh, you know, giving tremendous detail about what happened. So I say that to, you know, just 
be clear about where I'm getting the information. So emergency surgery was performed. McMath suffered cardiac arrest and eventually brain death. What followed was a battle between the hospital and the family over McMath's status as brain dead, the sensitive, the sensitive issue of organ donation, and at least some speculation that the family was either too stupid to understand the reality of McMath's condition or was looking for a payday to get rich from their daughter's tragedy, as the U.S. is notoriously litigious. While I won't go into much more of those details, unless you want to talk about it during the Q&A, I continue to be haunted by the words of McMath's mother, Nyla Winkfield, right? So she says, no one was listening to us and I can't prove it, but I really feel in my heart, if Jahai was a little white girl, I feel we would have gotten a little more help and attention. Note Winkfield did not say that a tragic outcome wouldn't have occurred even with all the help and attention in the world. And I think sometimes that gets um, lost in, in this particular kind of conversation. But also I think um, sometimes when families of patients who've experienced tragic outcomes express um, concern about how things happened, um, sometimes people in the medical community get a little defensive and say, you know, well, there's no guarantee that this wouldn't have happened. And I think what's important here in this moment is I think Winkfield is comfortable, well, not comfortable, that's not the right word, understands that, you know, sometimes things happen despite one's best efforts, despite one's best intentions. And I think there's an, there's a way in which she could have made peace with that or made peace with that in a different way. But What's salient for Wakefield, Winkfield, sorry, is that there was no help to begin with. And significantly, Winkfield believes that race mattered in the interaction, right? In the initial interaction and by extension, the outcome. So it mattered in terms of how the staff initially responded to McMath. And of course, the delayed response seems to have possibly paid, played some role in the outcome. Of course, there's no way to know that. Absolutely, um, 100% with 100% with certainty. What brought Winkfield to her belief was not only the experience with her daughter, but also the weight of a history of racial bias and bias practices that continue into the present, including the recently published findings that Black patients in the US are more frequently restrained in the emergency department, a finding that echoes earlier findings for mental health patients in the UK. So, you know, there are a lot of these kinds of studies about, you know, ways that um, bias manifests itself in healthcare context. If people are interested, I can give you the link to um, this most recent one that just came out, I think in the last two weeks or so, about decisions to use restraints. And I think I've written elsewhere about, you know, moments of decision being places where you can see these, these um, marked differences in how patients are treated according to race, right? That not everything is, um, you know, waving neo-Nazi flags and joining the Proud Boys. That sometimes, you know, there are these, these moments where you can choose A or choose B and, you know, you go with the more punitive measures for patients who are um, 
in some ways vulnerable or marginalized. And in this instance, or at least with this latest paper, it's about the decision to use restraints when patients are behaving in ways that staff perceive as challenging or threatening or dangerous. And so um, what we find, at least in the US, is that that's the case for Black patients and um, in the emergency department. And we see the same thing in the UK for mental health patients. So um, it is important to remember that our human interactions, including our interactions with healthcare personnel, do not operate within a vacuum. And I'll probably say this a couple of times uh, throughout the day that our interactions don't happen within a vacuum. Bioethicists, and, I, and I'm saying bioethicists um, because that's kind of who I'm thinking about as I, as I work through some of the kinks of this piece, but bioethicists would do well to think intentionally about the social and political contexts in which we do our work. And, you know, so I'm thinking about bioethicists not just because I am a bioethicist, but because bioethicists are often charged with, and we charge ourselves with, um, upholding certain kind of core ethical principles and intervening when there's conflict in, in very particular kinds of ways and being the, you know, I, I'm being a little cutesy when I say this, but being kind of the moral center of healthcare. I mean, that's literally what an ethicist is, right? We're thinking about kind of these, these challenges and dilemmas and, and using ethics to, as I think it should, guide decision-making. So elsewhere I've written that bioethicists can learn from this tragic case, especially the ways that race may have shaped the interactions between the hospital and the family. As I wrote for the Hastings Center, it is possible to acknowledge the history of racist medical practices that underlie the mistrust that many African-Americans feel toward the US healthcare system and to acknowledge that McMath's family believed that race was a factor in the disrespect they felt without assigning racist intentions to the hospital personnel in McMath's case. And I think sometimes when I talk about these kinds of issues or you know, other people I know who work in these areas, um, there's a kind of just defensiveness or a kind of um, belief that one is calling some individual person a racist. And that's actually not what I'm interested in um, for the purposes of these kind of talk or for the purposes of, of really thinking about how race structures our interactions. So in this instance, bioethicists bring useful tools to the clinical environment. One of the roles that bioethicists occupy in hospital settings is mediating conflict within families and between patients and or families and hospital personnel. To do this effectively in cases where at least one party believes race to be a factor in quality of care, Bioethicists have to be aware of the history and basis for this belief and cannot shy away from uncomfortable conversations about race. I'm not suggesting that bioethicists should automatically presume that a charge of racism or racial bias is correct. I'm suggesting that bioethicists can bring to the table a level of sensitivity and awareness of how race can and often does shape perception. This understanding can be useful in gaining clarity about the issues at hand and helping to find a solution. This cultural awareness and willingness to address race, even when uncomfortable, wouldn't replace the role of emotional intelligence, but it could provide additional nuance in cases where race may be a factor. 
So what I mean, what I mean here is, um, I think sometimes in an attempt to kind of mediate conflict or uh, in an attempt to um, make sure everyone feels heard, the mere fact of talking about race and racism makes some people so uncomfortable that they would rather avoid the conversation. And what I'm saying here or what I'm trying to press here is the idea that avoiding the conversation doesn't actually help. And in fact, it may cause more harm, more damage in the interaction. And that's something that I think a lot of um, bioethicists are thinking about in light of the current pandemic that we are experiencing and how that has, um, at least last summer, how that really came together in stark relief with these bigger protests for, for racial justice that happened across the world, actually. So what I did not discuss in my previous work about McMath was the role that McMath's obesity played in popular conversations about what happened to her. There was some speculation that had McMath not been obese, and again, we can talk about talk about the obesity thing. I'm just kind of taking that as um, language that's used to, to describe and think about her. Um, not that I am um, assigning a, a characteristic of obesity um, onto her, but um, there's some speculation that had McMath not been obese, she may not have experienced the complications that led to her brain death. Indeed, had McMath not been obese, she may not have needed surgery at all, so the thinking goes. So the thinking, so um, at least some of the rationale for the tonsillectomy was to, was to correct the sleep apnea, and at least there's some belief that the apnea and her weight kind of reinforce one another, the complications um, brought about reinforce one another. Uh, stigma about obesity permeates discussions about bodies and health status in the West, whether in the form of paternalistic concern or disdain. Conversations about obesity and health status sometimes take the tone of bringing negative health status on oneself due to laziness and or lack of self-control. Yet while in many countries, including the US, at least some forms of obesity are granted disability protections, the sense of whose fault obesity is doesn't go away. The literature on stigma shows that to the extent that people are perceived to have brought illnesses on themselves, others exhibit less sympathy and fewer helping tendencies. This perception tracks obesity and also um, smoking, drug use, and other kinds of sexual behavior, right? This idea of your behavior or your um, kind of conscious deliberate actions brought about um, negative circumstances in this, in this instance, health. As far as I know, the family has not expressed that they were made to feel that McMath's care was shaped by her obesity. However, the discussion about McMath's weight in the popular press is instructive because it reflects broad cultural attitudes about what bodies are valuable and what bodies are deserving of medical resources. And to that end, McMath's status as an obese young black girl made her multiply vulnerable to, poten to potential bias. So what is the takeaway from McMath or better, what could have been interesting lessons for bioethicists in the aftermath of McMath's death and why does it matter for our current moment of pandemic? For the remainder of the talk, I want to, I want to explore a few avenues. One, patients and their families want to be heard and respected. I know this sounds simplistic and obvious. However, this need can get lost in the cultural dynamics at play at bedside particularly when patients experience some form of vulnerability that complicates the illness that brought them to the clinical interaction. 
Two, when patients and their families do not trust their providers, the interaction suffers. And three, although the nature of healthcare requires making difficult decisions, making these decisions without careful attention to the cultural realities in which those decisions sit can reinforce structural inequality. So I think about these issues in light of McMath, but also how these same problems have resurfaced, right? And I guess they never went away, so resurfaced probably isn't the right word, in response to the current global pandemic. So one, John McMath experienced brain death. That may have happened regardless of the care McMath received. However, her family believed that the quality of care she received was diminished due to bias, implicit or explicit, about McMath's race, her perceived class. So I haven't talked about class um, before now, but there, there was some um, concern about her, her perceived class. We can talk about that in the community if you're interested. And certainly after the declaration of brain death, their religious sensibilities. So they had very strong um, beliefs that brain death is not in fact death and that there was a possibility for cure or miracle or something to that effect. It is partly that perception that contributed to the subsequent protracted legal battles that created further harm by hindering the family's ability to properly grieve their loved one. A longstanding dilemma for bioethics is figuring out what it means to listen to patients and their families, and as a practical matter, what should follow from listening. Recall that McMath's family expressed the feeling of not being listened to as they watched their loved one's health decline. It was this sense that compounded their pain around the loss of McMath. Standpoint epistemology is a concept developed in Black feminist literature. The general idea is that one's experiences contribute to how one comes to know and understand the world that one inhabits. Furthermore, having certain kinds of experiences brings unique insight that one may not otherwise be able to access, and that these insights are valuable for their own sake. It is important to remember that patients and their families often do bring unique insights into what patients experience and that these insights are not limited to symptom reports. When this insight is disregarded, either because the information that the patient brings is dismissed out of hand or because the patient himself is dismissed as a knower, then epistemic injustice occurs. In the healthcare context, epistemic injustice is an additional harm. The first harm is the harm of the illness itself for which no one may be responsible. And the second harm is the epistemic injustice for which someone is certainly responsible even if they don't perceive themselves to be. In short, not being heard harms patients and families sometimes with tragic outcomes. Due to the sociocultural environment in which we operate, some patients as a result of their social positioning are less likely to be believed there's some interesting literature around pain management and the perception of certain populations of patients as um, being perceived to be drug seeking or as being hysterical or as trying to game the system, just depending on the patient population, different, different kinds of stereotypes attach. But, um, but there's a lot in the literature around pain, pain management and showing up, particularly in the emergency department. And whether a patient is believed or what, what kinds of characteristics track um, how likely a patient is to be believed. Wingfield expressed that she felt unheard, at least partly because of her race. Being heard, being regarded as a knower in one's own right, how sometimes that does not happen, and how some are more vulnerable than others to not being heard, not being regarded as a knower, could have been an important takeaway in the McMath case. 
But the data and the popular press are revealing during the various peaks of the current pandemic is that some populations of patients are being turned away from emergency departments in greater numbers than should be expected, all things being equal. Black and brown populations in the US, black and indigenous populations in Canada, black populations in the UK, um, and while each of these places has different healthcare delivery systems and different sociocultural environments, it is the case that so-called racial minorities are disproportionately impacted by SARS-CoV-2 in diagnosis and in death. Some of this disproportionate impact occurs because these patient populations are turned away at first point of contact. Of course, this is more complicated in the US given its lack of universal healthcare, but the fact that we still see this in um, other places is or should be a matter of ethical concern as a health justice issue. Two, one consequence of epistemic injustice is the erosion of trust. And while I'm certainly not suggesting that epistemic injustice is the only or even the primary way that trust is damaged, having one's knowing undermined or disregarded harms not only the sufferer of the injustice, but also the relationship between parties. By trust, I mean the state of believing that one can rely on another. And what is interesting is that getting the ball rolling on epistemic injustice depends on mistrust. That is, X disregards Y as a knower because X does not trust that Y can or will accurately and reliably report Y's experiences to X. So mistrust lies at the heart of epistemic injustice. But I submit that one who experiences the mistrust inherent in epistemic injustice returns that mistrust in kind. One who experiences epistemic injustice knows that they cannot rely on the perpetrator to take their knowing seriously. Because at a certain point in the interaction, McMath's family no longer trusted the children's hospital staff, subsequent interactions were even more fraught than they otherwise might have been. And the provider-family relationship was irretrievably broken. This may have been, in the grand scheme of things, a one-off interaction. However, if enough of these interactions occur within a community over a sustained period of time, then an unfortunate one-off interaction becomes a series of interactions that become a community of potential patients who do not trust the area providers. The relationship between McMath's family had so far deteriorated that the family suspected that the hospital did not try to save her in order to procure her organs. Recall I said in the beginning that interactions between patients and families and providers does not occur in a vacuum. History was in that room as much as the present circumstances were. To review in conversations surrounding McMath's story, there was speculation whether the family was intelligent enough to understand brain death or whether they were using their daughter to get over on the hospital. Assumptions that themselves carry the weight of historical racial bias and stereotype. The failure to interrogate the role that mistrust played in the interaction with McMath's family was a missed opportunity for bioethics. Nevertheless, in the current pandemic, while vaccine hesitancy in Black, Brown, and Indigenous populations is at times rightly characterized as the result of mistrust, the undertone is that this mistrust is a failing of those populations who feel mistrustful, right? Maybe a failure to get over history or something like that, rather than a rational response to centuries of healthcare systems showing themselves to be untrustworthy. Furthermore, although trust is present in most successful interactions, 
and acknowledgement of the need to repair broken trust is laudable. Equally important is thinking about how to operate through mistrust. And this is something that I'm kind of thinking about now as we're seeing this kind of global vaccine distribution. You know, it, you know, if it's the case that mistrust plays this role that people think it does, and sometimes I think it's maybe an outsized role or that it's um, that maybe a bit much is being made of it, we still have to work through it in order to um, achieve vaccinating the population. So acknowledging mistrust is a necessary step in moral repair. However, in circumstances like the current pandemic, working through mistrust is even more pressing. So here's an opportunity for bioethics, right? So this is an opportunity for us to, to think about what it looks like to work through mistrust or work in spite of mistrust, right? In much of the world, the vaccine rollout could stand to be improved Globally, vulnerable communities find themselves disproportionately without equitable access to vaccines. Hiding behind often justified mistrust does not absolve one of the responsibility to think through how lack of equitable access reinforces structural injustice. And then three, there's a finite window within which organs are viable for transplant. As a result, specific institutional processes are triggered upon a finding of brain death, including approaching families to ask about organ donation. With the laudable goal in mind of maximizing the possibility of saving lives, it makes sense to initiate these conversations sooner rather than later. At the same time, this goal has to be governed by a principle of non-maleficence. I'm not suggesting that the staff at Children's Hospital set out to intentionally inflict harm on McMath or her family by asking them about organ donation. But because, as I've said a few times now, our interactions do not happen in a vacuum, one has to consider the context of institutional policies and even informal practices before creating and implementing them. While I understand that non-maleficence is often thought of in the context of individual patients, entire communities can be harmed by when broader considerations and their consequences are absent from the deliberation about institutional policies. This is the crux of structural injustice, the idea that disadvantage accrues and persists even in the absence of continued malice. This pandemic has brought with it many difficult decisions and has exposed tremendous worry about allocation of medical resources, including ventilators, but also about the rationing of COVID care more broadly. I'm sure we're all familiar with the problem of who gets a ventilator, right? I mean, a lot of the press about this time last year um, like to play that game. Um, yeah, we can talk about that later if people are interested. But members of marginalized communities have expressed worry that these decisions will reinforce, intentionally or not, hierarchy about whose lives are more valuable, leaving racial minorities, the disabled, and the aged among those who suffer unjustly. For example, algorithms and other mechanisms that assign qualities, right, quality adjusted life years, are sometimes heralded as being free of bias. Yet it is clear that this is not the case. For example, pulse oximeters, which measure oxygen saturation um, and, and which during the pandemic have been taken as reliable indicators for patients decline, have been shown to read less accurately on darker skin. If we know this, then continued reliance on pulse ox readings as measures of the seriousness of a patient's condition is an act of maleficence. And it is an act of maleficence, not solely against individual patients, but, but against entire patient populations. Therefore, it cannot be justified. 
I've offered some ways um, how lessons from an individual tragic case that presented a variety of challenges for bioethicists could be extrapolated to think about this current moment. I do think that Jahai McMath experienced injustice, even if no individual hospital staff person acted with malice, even if she would have died anyway as a result of the complications she suffered. I also think that disadvantages that accrue as a result of social categories like race, disability status, age, and class can further challenge already difficult circumstances. Nonetheless, I think that bioethicists can learn from these individual moments. In that way, a commitment to justice remains at the forefront in the face of big moments. Thank you.